0: Well, as we've already mentioned this morning, today is Trinity Sunday, and it's a bit daunting to try and unpack the doctrine of the Trinity on a Sunday morning and do it in about 18 minutes or so. Um, today is not the day for novel ideas. Uh, any kind of novel idea today on Trinity Sunday might as well just be called heresy. And so we're not going to try and offer you any really clever analogies or images about what we mean when we say Trinity. And as daunting as this is today, um, I think about my friend who was invited to Islamabad, Pakistan to speak at the Islamic University. And they asked him to come and to speak on the basics of Christianity basics of Christianity. I'm talking about my friend Rowan, of course. And in his lecture in Islamabad, Pakistan, at the Islamic University, to people who are completely foreign to the Christian narrative, as he's talking about the basics of the Christian faith, he starts to unpack the Trinity. So as daunting as this moment may seem, it's nothing like standing in Islamabad, Pakistan and trying to get a bunch of people at the Islamic University to wrap their minds around what we mean when we say Trinity. At least when we say Trinity in a space like this, we kind of have some shared language. We kind of have some idea of what we mean or at least what we're talking about. And to be sure, there are a lot of unhelpful Ways we can talk about the Trinity. There's a theologian, her name is Sandra Schneider. Did I get that right? Sandra Schneider. She says that the Trinity is not two men and a bird. But to take that a step further, the Trinity is not like ice and water and steam. We've heard all these kinds of ideas before. And I don't so much wanna offer us any new ideas so much as help us to see what we mean when we talk about the Trinity, how we're positioned in the life of the Trinity. The Trinity for us becomes a kind of model for common life. What we see happening in the Trinity is that the Trinity exists in this divine community, this divine relationship of gift and givenness. That the Father is giving to the Son and the Son is receiving from the Father as the Son gives to the Spirit and the Spirit is receiving from the Son and the Spirit is giving to the Father as the Father gives and receives from the the Spirit, that it's this kind of cycle of givenness and giving, of gift and receiving, of being open-handed. This is one of the reasons why when we come to the table on Sunday mornings, that we don't come grasping, we don't come taking the bread, we come with our hands open, ready to receive. We come so that as we receive, we're also open to freely give, as people who give and receive love. Rowan Williams says that a doctrine like that of the Trinity tells us that the very life of God, the very life of God is a yielding or a giving over into the life of the other. That for us to find ourselves situated in this life of the Trinity, this life that is a a spilling over of the love that is given between Father, Son, and Spirit. To find ourselves there is to be people who are oriented toward one another. Our lives are in Christ, as the scripture tells us. God of very God. Which means that for the Christian, the Trinity is not a model for common life, even though I just said it's a kind of model for us. It's not a model of common life. The Trinity is reality itself. The Trinity is not an abstract theory or some out there philosophy. The Trinity is where you live. It is not primarily a doctrine that we try to ascend to and try to understand it's the reality to which the baptized people belong. And to be baptized, of course, is for us to be filled up with the Spirit in which God is God, and to be bound up with the bond that the Son has with the Father, and to realize at the deepest possible level that we are bound by the same Spirit to everyone else and to everything else. This is is the space in which we live and move and have our being. This means that for us, the Trinity is singing a kind of song in the universe, and for us to step into that divine community, to step into that divine relationship, is for us to learn how to harmonize with that music so that our lives can sing, so that our lives can make sense in light of the Spirit, And then, of course, for us to resist this kind of song, to resist this kind of unity and this kind of love and this kind of givenness, for us to resist it is to live in discord with the Spirit and with one another. In our gospel text, we see this kind of tragic person of Nicodemus in Nicodemus, of course, the text tells us that he comes to Jesus at night. He comes under the cover of darkness and the kind of safety of anonymity. And what we see in Nicodemus is that he has is, he is yet to see the depths to which he is bound to others. And so this is why he comes at night, that he still has something to protect. Augustine says of Nicodemus, That he's coming wanting to be enlightened, but feared being known. Wanting to be enlightened, but feared being known. And this is not a danger that's unique to Nicodemus. This is not a condition that's unique to first century. We are also in danger of wanting to come to be enlightened, but resist and fear actually stepping into the light. We fear and we resist knowing and being known. But of course, the spirit is the one that blows where it pleases, as our gospel text mentioned this morning. And so what we see is that if we are people whose lives are animated by the Spirit, if we are really people who have been able to hoist our sails and be blown along by the breath and the wind of the Spirit, what we see is that the Spirit is always leading us back to one another. And so for us to want to live in darkness, to live in anonymity, to live in spaces that don't require us to know others and to be known by others is to actually resist the work of the Spirit in our lives. If we're people who are captured by this Spirit, we will inevitably be brought back to service and to love one another. Today is a bit of a complicated day for a number of reasons. It's Trinity Sunday. Today is also Memorial Day weekend. And so it's important for us to pause and to recognize the ways in which people have sacrificed for centuries, securing the kinds of freedoms and independence that we share, that we're privileged to have. Today is also, Today is also the senior PGA championship at Southern Hills Golf Club. It's a miracle any of you are here today. (laughs) And today is also the centennial anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre, 100 years today. Which means that for 100 years, Tulsa has been living in the wake of the bloodiest racial massacre in American history. Just a few blocks from where we're seated today. It's an eight-minute walk from this location. And to be sure, we are still working out what it means to live on the other side of that moment. We haven't sorted out what it is for our geography to be reshaped by that moment. Not very many of us think about the ways that the physical geography of Tulsa is shaped by that moment. That we have Highway 244 that exists as this kind of boundary marker of Tulsa and North Tulsa. I had an opportunity a couple of years ago to interview Tony Moore, who is the director of The Gathering Place for the last couple of years. And in that conversation with him, He mentioned that he was working at Disney World, and he's one of the park directors at Disney World, which is incredible. And he said, I would never really leave Disney unless it was to like go to like China or maybe someplace in the UK because they just pour so much money and so much thoughtfulness into their common spaces, the spaces where they share their lives together. And then he gets his phone call from Tulsa, and they present this project of gathering space, gathering place. And as he started doing some digging and doing some research into the history of Tulsa, he started to see the way that this project was so much more than just a park. This was so much more than just a nice place to bring your family and go for walks. But he bumps into the history of the Tulsa Race Massacre. He sees the ways in which our demographics are physically split between North and South. He sees the ways in which kids who are born in North Tulsa oftentimes spend their entire lives without ever even coming south of downtown. And he saw the way that this place could actually be these, these, one of these connection points for a community like Tulsa. And so he's championing projects like making sure there are free shuttles that are coming from North Tulsa and bringing kids to the gathering space, which is an amazing effort, right? But it's tragic. It's tragic, but it's still the space in which we live. And if we're going to be people of a place, we need to know who we are. We need to know what's in the ground in a place like Tulsa, which means we have to let not just our physical geography shift, but the geography of our souls and our spirits and our hearts I remember when we were in Jenks a number of years ago and we were looking at a building on 41st and Harvard. Some of you remember this. And we were in a family meeting and we mentioned, you know, we've got this opportunity, we think this is gonna be great, really exciting. Um, the location's at 41st and, and Harvard. And somebody raised their hand in that meeting and said, well, I don't go to North Tulsa. <laughs> 41st and Harvard. We have no idea. We have no idea who we are, where we come from, but it's so many people's lived experience here in Tulsa. And to be sure, when we're bumping into a moment like this anniversary, we have to assess how do these things happen? And then how do we as a community on the other side of this moment heal in this moment? This fear of knowing, this kind of spirit that Nicodemus carries into this conversation with Jesus, this fear of knowing and being known mixed with deep prejudice and hatred and racism, this is what leads to events like the Tulsa Race Massacre but the knowing and the being known is how we heal. Taking risks with one another, standing in solidarity with one another, this is what heals us. One of our texts for today, it's kind of an odd text, it's out of Isaiah chapter six. You don't run into too many verses in Isaiah that aren't a little odd. Let me read this for us, this is Isaiah six. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne. He's having this vision. High and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple, which paints this picture of a kind of worship scenario. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet, and with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty." Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is blotted out. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. I want to draw our attention to this moment in this text of this live burning coal. Oftentimes when we see texts like this, we associate this live coal with a kind of punishment, with a kind of judgment on someone. Remember that verse in Romans 12 that says, when your enemy is hungry, feed them. When your enemy is thirsty, give them something to drink. And by doing this, you will what? Heap burning coals on his head but in antiquity what we see is that fire is not equated with punishment it's not equated with judgment as we understand judgment fire in antiquity is a cleansing fire it means it's a a kind of burning away taking away everything that isn't true in us This is what we see in Isaiah, that he is the one who is touched with the coal and it says what, his guilt is taken away and his sin is blotted out. The church fathers, the patristics attach this idea to Jesus and they say that Jesus' life is like iron that has been heated in the fire until it has the same power to burn as the fire does. Think about that, that the life of Jesus is so connected, so inseparable from the life of God, that it's like the iron that's been heated in the fire that has the same power now to burn that the fire does. They're saying that as God, Jesus' life is so unreservedly bound up in the life of God the Father that they are in effect the very same life doing the very same things, burning away the very same dross, casting out the very same guilt and shame because Jesus is God from God, light from light. This is the room that we are invited into. This is the reality that we are invited to participate in so that when we show up We can show up in order to know and to be known. That it's not because we want to be enlightened while we remain in fear, while we remain in darkness. We don't come like Nicodemus. We don't come like one who just wants to have all of the right ideas without actually placing our bodies in places of responsibility and risk and solidarity with our neighbors we show up so that we can be the baptized, the ones whose lives are filled up with the Spirit, bound up with the bond that the Son has with the Father, so that our lives now have the same power to burn as the fire of God in the world. Not for judgment, not for condemnation, not for shame, but so that their guilt can be sent away. Their guilt is departed. Their shame abandoned. Their sin forgiven. And in this way, we will all be healed. Amen.